Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, we will be considering verses 17 to 27. As you turn there, I want to start with a question. You probably don't want to raise your hand or answer out loud, but think about the question. Have you ever been frustrated by something you read in the Bible? You know why? You shouldn't raise your hand, right? No, but it, it's true, that, and it's common that we may come to the Bible sincerely. We may come ready to hear and ready to learn and ready even to respond to what's being said. But maybe you've experienced this, that you read something and you realize that stands opposed to what I want to be true. Maybe the Bible's different. What the Bible says is different than what you've always thought to be true. Or maybe what the Bible says about a particular subject is contrary or contradictory to the way you're living. I think this is common. Sometimes we come to the Bible hoping, have you ever done this? You come to the Bible hoping that you can find affirmation for your way of thinking. And then it doesn't. And when the two don't match up, you realize you have a decision to make. You can believe and submit to the word of God. Or you can reject it. And keep on living the way you're living. Thinking the way you're thinking. Now, I'm speaking in generalities. You're thinking, well, you know, I get it, but... I would submit. I would obey. But brothers and sisters, do you remember that there are texts where Jesus says that we are to take up our cross and follow him? Have you considered the high calling of Christ? There are texts that forces us to consider that we're to give it all. But aren't we tempted to want to hold on to control of something? He can have it all, but this, this is mine. And so we come to the text and we have to make a decision. Will we submit to what he's called us to? Or will we live for ourselves, even if in just this one small area? Would it help to be specific? Maybe you come to the Bible with a question about how to handle a relationship. And as you read, you realize that God has called you to something. He's called you to handle this relationship in a way that's going to hurt. He's called you to do things you're not sure you can do. And you have a decision to make. Will I submit or will I choose to do what I want to do? Maybe it's a question about money. The text we're in this morning talks about money. You've been warned. Maybe as you read the Bible, you're convicted that God has a high standard for how we use our money, and yet you realize you've not been a good steward of what he's given you. So you look at the budget, and you look at the scriptures, and you realize, I have a choice to make. I can live sacrificially and generously the way he's called me to, or I can hang on. 
to what I really want. Maybe for you it's a question about how committed you really need to be to the local church. Surely, it's just preachers that are trying to get us to always be there and to always be involved. But maybe you go to the scriptures and you recognize, no, this is God's calling for us to live together and to worship together. But it's hard, and so you're trying to decide, will I submit fully? Will I give my life to Christ's church? Or will I just regulate that to Sunday mornings at 10 and then go about my week? You can fill in your own examples. The question is, will we believe and obey what God says? Or will we try to justify our own way? This morning we come to a passage where a man has to make that kind of decision. He comes to Jesus, the source of all truth, and he asks him a question. And he receives an answer, but he doesn't like the answer. And he has to make a choice. And the question he asks and the struggle he has is one that we all must reckon with. With that in mind, let's go to the scriptures. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 17 and we will read through verse 27. Hear the word of God. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God add his blessing and work in our hearts through the reading and preaching of his word. It's a story about a man who has a question, and it's not a throwaway question. In fact, I would submit that it's the most important question that any of us could ever ask. This is a more important question than whether or not you should marry. 
this is a more important question about whether or not you should have children or not. This question is more important about than whether or not you go to college. It's more important than where you work. It's more important than how much you save for retirement. This is the most important question and one that we must all reckon with. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And if that question seems insignificant to you, man, check your heart and ask, why is this not significant to me? The question of eternity and how to attain it. How can we live forever in the kingdom of God? It's an important question. And quite frankly, isn't this the question that everyone who had been around Jesus was trying to find out? Those who saw him and recognized him, isn't this what they wanted to know? And now we have a man who finally just comes out and asks. Aren't you glad for this man? Give it to us straight. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who is he? Who is this man? We don't have his name, so we'll just call him a man, but there are some descriptions. In the Gospel of Matthew, if you read that account, we're told that he's a young man. If you read Luke's account, we're told that he's a ruler. In all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that he's rich. So in the heading of your Bible, it probably says something like the rich, young ruler, which tells us quite a bit about him. He's a man's of, man of means. He's a man of status. He lacks for nothing. And yet, when we meet him, he's doing things that we may not expect from a rich and powerful man. He's running after a guy who doesn't have a home. He's running after Jesus. This is an important man. How often must he have just sent someone? Will you go and ask this person a question? Will you go and fetch this or fetch that? This task could not be left to anyone else. He runs to Jesus, and when he gets there, he falls down in front of him. Once again, something that this man probably had not done often. He was rich. He was a ruler, and yet here he is, kneeling, a sign of humility in front of Jesus. And he uses a title of respect. He calls him good teacher. So hopefully you have the scene in your mind. This young, rich ruler runs, falls down before Jesus, and he comes with a question. Verse 17, he was setting, Jesus was setting out on his journey. Where is he going? He's headed to Jerusalem. Jesus is heading towards the cross, but on the way, this man runs up, and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's an important question. It's a question that's phrased different ways in different parts of the Bible. Sometimes the question is, how can we be saved? Sometimes the question is, how can we enter the kingdom of God? How can we have everlasting life? Questions phrased differently, but they're all basically the same. What's going to happen to us after this life? And 
It's interesting. Maybe there was other conversation, but we're not told of anything else. What we're told is this man runs, he falls down before Jesus, and without any other recorded conversation, he just asks the question. He gets straight to the point. And Jesus responds. And to go back to where we started, what we're going to see is that he does not get the answer he desired. But before we look at his response, let's consider what Jesus says. He answers the man's question and comes in a few parts. The first thing he says is this. We see in verse 18, Jesus says to the man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, if you're reading through the story quickly, it may seem that Jesus is dodging the question. He's asked you a straightforward question. I don't think Jesus is dodging the question. In fact, I think he's laying a foundation so that the man can better understand the answer that he gets. Jesus knows he's not going to like the answer he receives. So before he gives him the answer, he lays a foundation. He starts with this. A recognition of who God is. The man called him good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? And and this wouldn't have been that unusual for someone to have called a man a good teacher. But it was also well known in Judaism that for thinking theologically correct, for speaking theologically correct, There's no one who's good except God alone. Think about Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, to see if there are any who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You probably recognize it, maybe not from Psalm 14, but perhaps from Romans when Paul quotes it. What's he saying? He's reminding this man through this maybe somewhat seemingly innocuous conversation about what he was called. He reminds the man that we have a God who is good and who is holy, who is completely set apart. What, What are we learning here? We're getting a reminder that God is good and we are not. And because he's perfectly holy and perfectly good, none of us are even in that category. Therefore, we are not fit to enter his presence. You got all that from that? I think that's that's the point. He's reminding us of the character of God, which is a significant part of our understanding of the gospel, is it not? Now, of course, Jesus is God, and we could have a whole conversation about why Jesus would say God is good and seemingly separate himself. I think at this point, Jesus is talking to the man in terms he can understand. God is good and God alone. God is holy, which is to say he's in a class all to himself, and none of us are worthy to stand in his presence. If we don't, if you don't understand the holiness of God, the gospel will never make sense to you. Why would hell be an appropriate punishment for those who don't believe? That only makes sense if we understand the holiness of God. We have to understand that he is good and we are not. And because he is who he is, we are not fit to enter his presence. 
as you're sharing the gospel, this is a, a good place to start. Helping people understand who God is. Hopefully you can see how this is relevant to the man's question. Jesus is laying a foundation for the answer by reminding him of the character of God. And then he reminds him of the standard of God. Verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. At this point, Jesus is headed down a path that this man's really comfortable with. Remember, this is a good and faithful Jew. And Jesus is right when he says, you know the commandments. This man knows the commandments. Now, when we think about commandments, he just says, you know the commandments. What commandments do we generally think of? We think of the ten, right? The ten commandments are the heart of the law of God. Maybe you notice Jesus only mentioned six of them. And actually, of the six he mentions, one isn't exactly one of the commandments. If you think about how the commandments are laid out, the first four are about how we relate to God. The, 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 the last six are about how we relate to one another. And Jesus mentions that second set. He starts in six. And he says six, seven, eight, nine. And then he rewords ten. He says, do not defraud, which is different than not coveting, but maybe this is a specific application for this man out of that commandment. And then he lists the fifth, honor your father and mother. Without going too far into that, what we see here is that Jesus is reminding this man of God's standard. He's established the holiness of God. Now he's reminded the man of the law of God. God is good and you are not. God has given the law. But at this point, the man couldn't be more confident Jesus is, in fact, saying exactly what he would hope to hear. Because he had given his life to doing what he believed would earn him favor with God. You know, when a Jewish boy turned 13, that was the traditional age where they formally became accountable. They were to keep the law. And so when he says in verse 20, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. What he's saying is, from that day when I became a man, I have obeyed. Now, when you hear this, I wonder if you're like me, maybe you hear him as a hypocrite. Because we know the teachings of Jesus. And we know the law is more than outward conformity. It's a matter of the heart. For us, we read the commandments, I hope, You read the commandments and you hear the words of Jesus when he says that anyone who has lust in his heart is guilty of adultery. And that anyone who has sinful anger has committed murder in his heart. Is it possible that this man never had a covetous thought? That he fully honored his father and mother? From our vantage point, I think we know this man has not kept the law perfectly. But what he's claiming wasn't unusual. The rabbis at that time, they had the law, and then they had their version of the law, and they had all their boxes they could check, and there were many among the faithful Jews who would say, I have done that. Do you remember the testimony of Paul in Philippians chapter 3? 
Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if that rich young ruler thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. This guy wasn't an outlier. He was like many, many in his time who would say, I have done what God has called me to do. Therefore, I've earned his favor. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so far, this man's thinking, I'm good. And maybe it's easy to talk about him. But isn't this how most people think? I hope you think about sharing your faith and what that looks like, and I hope you're having those conversations. This is a great place to start. Ask someone the question, what do you think you need to do to go to heaven? Almost without fail, people will tell you that the way we get to heaven is by obeying God's law. If we live a certain way, and if you, if you poll people on the street, this is the answer you'll probably get. And then you could even ask the next question. How are you doing with that? And most people, believe it or not, think they're doing pretty well. They won't claim perfection, but by their own standards, they are good enough. Most people, and maybe you're in this category, I don't want to assume that you're not. Maybe you're trusting in yourself and you've decided that for the most part, you're probably okay. That was the testimony of the rich young ruler, and I think he came to Jesus for confirmation of what he already believed to be true. But Jesus knows he's placing his confidence in the wrong thing, that he's trusting himself and not in God. And Jesus is going to help him see what he's lacking, but first, man, don't miss the first part of verse 21. Jesus looking at him, not just a glance. It's a word that's not really used very much in the New Testament. It's a compound word. It's talking about an intense, deep, probing look. Jesus looked at him. And he loved him. What an absolutely beautiful glimpse into the heart of Christ. Jesus is looking at a man who, like you, is a sinner. And a man who had spent his life trying to please God and trying to earn God's favor and believed that he had attained righteousness on his own. And Jesus looked at him, knowing his sin and knowing his self-deception, seeing his need. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Jesus sees sinners who need saving and he looks at them with love. Reminds me of earlier in Mark, we're told that Jesus looked at the crowd. Remember, they're on the boat. They're trying to get away, but they come up on the shore and there's thousands of people there. And we're told that Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion in his heart because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks at sinful and lost man, we're told that he has compassion 
that he has love. And I have to ask you, church, how similar is your heart to the heart of Christ? When you look at those around you who are dead in sin, who think they are okay because they're better than the next guy, is your heart moved with compassion for them? And if it is, do you speak? Do you help them see their need? How is your heart in regards to the lost? How much did Jesus love sinners? He came and he died on a cross so that we could be saved. Here's this man asking a very important question. Jesus already knows he doesn't want the real answer. Jesus knows the decision this man is about to make. He looks at him and he loved him. And he loved him enough to tell him the truth. We say we love people. Maybe we don't love them enough to tell them the truth. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. What we see here is the love of Jesus expressed as he tells the man exactly what must be done. He speaks to him specifically. He knows this man's heart and he knows what this man must do to follow him. Now, this text could easily be misunderstood by us. Is Jesus suggesting that the way we gain eternal life is by giving away all of our possessions? Is he teaching us here that the road to heaven is a road of poverty? Is he suggesting that our relationship with God is really dependent on something that we do to earn God's favor? If you do this, he will do that. And the short answer is no. We don't gain heaven by giving away our things. We inherit heaven by surrendering our hearts and our lives to Jesus. What Jesus knew, because he knows all things, is that in this man's case, there was one significant barrier to surrender. There was one thing that he loved and trusted more than anything else. And as long as that thing remained, he would never truly depend on Jesus. See, the heart of the command isn't really the first part, it's the last part. Jesus says this, come follow me. What would it look like for that guy to follow Jesus? He had to give up everything else that he was basing his life on. And the same is true for you, but for you it may not be all your things. What are you hanging on to that would keep you from the kingdom of God? I wonder if this sounds different to you than what we talked about last week. Remember last week? That was a long time ago, wasn't it? Last week we talked about how Jesus told his disciples that those who enter the kingdom of God are the ones who come to him like children. Is that inconsistent with what we see here? No, I don't think it is. I think it's the same thing. Jesus said then that those who inherit the kingdom of God are those who come to him helpless 
and dependent and recognizing their need. What we have here is a man who was confident in what he had and was satisfied that he had earned favor with God. He does not come with empty hands. He comes with hands that are full, trusting in himself. Do you see how these say the same thing? Jesus says the only ones who enter the kingdom of God are those who come like children. For you, young, rich man, the only way you enter is to have faith like a child. For you, that will mean giving up everything else. He comes with an honest question. Sometimes we come to the Bible with honest questions and we get answers. The question is, will we respond to what he says? This man asked his question and he got the answer. And we see his response in verse 22. Disheartened by what Jesus said, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Do you see the contrast between verse 17 and verse 22? In 17, we're told the man comes running to Jesus passionately and humbly, at least outwardly. In 22, we're told that he walks away disheartened and sorrowful. But why? Had Jesus not answered his question? No, he'd leave sorrowful because Jesus had answered his question. He leaves sad because he knows that he's not prepared to do what God has called him to do. He came with a question, but the answer he received wasn't the answer he wanted. And he didn't think he could do what Jesus required. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he loved his sin. Because he wasn't willing to give up what he attained. The call to follow Jesus is a call to give our lives. We can go back two chapters to Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Could not this verse be said to that, this very man? Maybe it's appropriate for you. Because you're willing to risk your soul for the pleasure of today. You know, it's interesting. Jesus quoted that second half of the commandments. I think he knew that these commandments were the ones that this man resonated most with because these are the ones he perceived that he had kept. What about the first commandment? We read in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's evident that this man's heart wasn't fully devoted. He loved other gods. He loved money and possessions. 
Jesus unpacks this even further in, a met, in later verses. But first, just let me ask you again. Is there anything that you love and trust and value more than God? Have you given your heart to him? Have you come as a child or have you come trusting yourself? Do you believe that somehow you've earned your standing before God? What we see is that this man leaves because he loves what he has. He loves the life he built and he's not willing to give it up. He leaves and we never hear from him again. The conversation continues as Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples. Don't forget there's other people who are watching and who are hearing this conversation. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now Jesus knew his disciples would have questions. And he uses this as another opportunity to teach them. What they saw was a rich man. And, and for them, a man who was rich was a man who had been blessed by God. This was a way of thinking. God blesses through riches, and he can do that. For them, this was a, a confusing thing because someone who was important, who had standing and kept the law, came to Jesus and walked away sorrowful. And Jesus tells them it's harder for him because he has wealth. Says the disciples were amazed at these words. Verse 24. It's hard for him. It's difficult for him. And then Jesus reiterates, he doubles down. Verse 24. Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for the wealthy. In fact, it's hard for everyone because all of us have things that we are tempted to hang on to and to value and to love. We are all tempted to trust in ourselves. Hard? Difficult? I thought I just had to come to him like a child. Well, coming like a child is harder than you think. It means you trust him completely. It means recognizing your dependency. But we are tempted to trust in what we've done. We are tempted to love other things more than Jesus. The call to come is simple, but it's not natural. And it's not without sacrifice. It's simple, but it's not easy. Childlike faith, faith sounds simple, but it's not easy. It means that we're willing to give up everything. And what Jesus is trying to help the disciples recognize and to help us recognize is that for those who have a lot in this world, the sense of sacrifice seems larger. For those who don't have much, it may be easier to recognize our need. For those who don't have much, it may be easier to trust someone outside of yourself. But for those who have built a life of comfort and security, the opposite is true. And I wonder if you're sitting here thinking, I'm the one with little, others are the ones with much. Can I just push back on that for a second? Because I think you're more worried about the age of your phone than whether or not you'll eat lunch today. 
we have so much. By the standards of the rest of the world and by the standards of the rest of history, we have more. And you're comfortable. So am I. Even the worst among us. Which means we're tempted to think we're okay. And we're tempted to miss the depth of our need. We can be tempted to find hope and security in things other than Jesus. We may be tempted to lose him because we hang on to other things. Is it really about giving away everything? No. But it is about giving him your heart. He gives us an illustration. These are my favorite kind of passages because as a preacher, I'm supposed to come up with illustrations and sometimes Jesus does it for me. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He gives him an illustration to prove how difficult, difficult is. How difficult is it? Well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You probably understand the illustration. A camel was the largest animal in that region that they would have seen on a regular basis. They knew what it was like to stand next to a camel and to feel small. Camels are big. Camels don't fit into small spaces. And then there's a needle. Well, some said, oh, this is probably a bigger needle than what we think of as a needle. Well, even still. Some of you have a superpower. Some of you could take a needle, a a needle needle like we think of, and you could take a thread and you just stick it through there. (laughs) I don't have that superpower. I'm licking it, (laughs) twisting it. I can't even get a thread through a needle. But I try, and I know it's possible because I've seen other people do it. I've never seen someone put a camel through a needle, and neither had they. And this is the illustration. This is what Jesus is trying to convey. This is how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who have a lot are tempted to trust in what they have other than him. Now let's pause for a second and let's ask and answer this question. Is Jesus saying that rich people don't go to heaven? No. That's not the point. In fact, we read later in in the Gospel of Mark about Joseph of Arimathea. He's a really rich man and he's never told to give it all away. In fact, it's spoken of positively. And we can go through the Bible and you can make a long list of rich people. Abraham comes to mind and Job It's not impossible for those who have much to enter the kingdom of God, but don't miss the warning. Riches can be dangerous. Riches can be a hindrance. Your money could keep you from the kingdom of God. Be very careful that you aren't led astray by what you have. And if you love money more than you love God, then get rid of it. Nothing you can keep on earth is worth the price of your soul. And maybe for you, money's not the problem, and so this seems like an easy message. Well, just fill in the blank with whatever you want to hang on to. It's a warning, and perhaps you think it's a radical warning, and if you think it's radical, you're not alone. The disciples said this. Well, Mark says they were exceedingly astonished 
And they said to Jesus, okay, then who can be saved? If it's that difficult, is there anyone who can be saved? That's a good question. Camels can't go through needles. I know that. And if it's that hard, can any of us truly trust him? Can any of us get low enough? Can any of us come humbly enough? Can any of us really have faith like a child? The answer we get from Jesus is, no, you can't. But yes, he can. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, with man, it's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Is it possible for sinful men, corrupt in heart, loving nothing but sin and self, to turn our eyes to God and to trust him for salvation? It's impossible for us, but not for God. Because we have a God who can change sinful hearts. And maybe you have something that you're hanging on to that you don't think you can let go of. It seems impossible. We have a God that can put a camel through the eye of a needle. He can change your heart. We're called to trust him more than we trust anything else, to depend on him. And the question is, could we ever love him rightly? Or are we all doomed to be like the rich young ruler? Praise God for verse 27. And this reminder that with God it is possible. This is our hope. On our own, we can never love or trust him, but he can do it in us. On our own, we will always love the other thing more than him. But God, through his spirit, has set us free from ourselves. He can take a heart that loves the world and the things of the world and set it on fire with allegiance to him. And so, friend, go to that one who you think will never believe. Go to that one who loves what he has more than he could ever love God and share the gospel with him because it may be impossible for him, but it is possible with God. With God, it is possible for sinners like you and me to trust him. With God, it is possible for us to love God more than the lures of the world. With God, it is possible for sinful men to live forever in the presence of the holy God, the only one who is good. The text pushes us to consider who we will trust. As we began, I encourage you to consider how honestly and how submissively you approach the word of God. There's a lot in this text for us to consider. We can talk about the nature of salvation, the danger of riches, and the power of God to save. But this story is also about a man who heard the words of Jesus and walked away because the call seemed too high. And so this morning, I want to ask you to consider your heart. What is it that God has called you to that you're ignoring? Is there a part of your heart that you have not yet let go of? Is there something that could keep you from the kingdom of God? I want to plead with you, friends. Jesus is better. He's better than any pleasure. 
He's better than any possession. He's better than anyone or anything that you could give your life to. And if you think I could never trust God the way you're suggesting that we must, if you're thinking who can be saved, we'll know this. It's not really about you at all. With you, it's impossible. With him, all things are possible. So trust him. I hope you will trust him. Don't be like the man who walked away. Hear the call. Follow Jesus.